All right, everyone. Welcome back to the weekly roundup of On the Margin. Uh, I'm your co-host, Michael Lippolito, and I'm joined, as always, by my magnanimous co-host, Mr. Tyler Neville. What's going on, Tyler? Magnanimous. Do you just wait to see what adjective you're going to get? Are you? Yeah. Is there some anticipation? Flipping through the SAT book. Okay, <laughs> magnanimous. Yeah, you got to check my Amazon order history. I'm going to have like a thesaurus in there. Um, <laughs> There's only so many words in the English language if I set myself up for failure here. We're going 10 seasons, baby, so. (laughs) A boring adjective. Yeah, I'm going to run out of words. All right, man, we got a really interesting uh, show this week because a lot of uh, interesting stuff has happened. We're going to be covering uh, Biden's proposed increase to the cap gains tax. Mm-hmm. That's very interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, soft, uh, soft inflation. So we're seeing the beginnings of uh, at least commodity inflation. Uh, Mike Novogratz's Galaxy Digital is said to be in talks to acquire BitGo. Um, and then finally, Coinbase Pro is announcing support for Tether, or at least the Ethereum-based uh, uh, version of Tether. So that's pretty interesting. That's that's one I, I will be totally honest. You probably understand the least. Um, we're going to ask actually our audience for some help there. But yeah, man, big week. A lot of really interesting stuff to to chat about. I'm excited to get into it. I also love this new background that you have, by the way. I can't believe this hasn't been the background the entire time. <laughs> well, you know, people are so bored of the white walls or the bookcases. I was like, you know what? Let's look out the... Uh, white the- wall. <laughs> this yeah. thing. <laughs> yeah. The, the beginning of the pandemic, everyone's like, let's show off all the books I read. You know, now, like, I don't know. I feel like give someone else, uh, give them something to, different to look at this time. Dude, you're literally outing me. I have a white background usually with a bookcase in the yeah. background. Gotta <laughs> <laughs> switch it up, man. <laughs> All right. Well, now I, I'm feeling attacked. So that's yeah. uh, enough. Enough of the small talk uh, for this week, Tyler. Let's just get right into it. All right. So let me let me lay it up here. Um, so the big story of the week, and where I actually want to spend a lot of time, is this proposed um, hike to the capital gains tax rate. So President Joe Biden will propose almost doubling. Uh, the cap gains tax rate to 39.6% uh, percent to help pay for a raft of government spending. I think it's pretty interesting to, to see how it's being billed, uh, which is to reduce longstanding issues around inequality. Get more into that later. Uh, their proposal would apply to those earning $1 million or more, which means that the federal tax rate for wealthy investors could be as high as 43.4%. So if you've been seeing that number, 44%, that's actually what that's referring to. And for those living in New York or California, especially if you're living in New York City and paying some of those extra city taxes, your uh, tax rate could top 50%. So oh, yeah, it's pretty intense. It's pretty intense. What do you make about all this? A uh, lot, lot of side effects from this. Mm. Uh, you know, I think that was probably the, this last washout in digital assets probably had a lot to do with it. People trying to get ahead of that and monetize some of the, the profits they made. But, mm. you know, what's what's funny is there's this huge divergence with the stock market. And we'll, we can get into that later, but I, I think there's something, a whole nother phenomenon going on there. But um, yeah, it's we're just at a seminal turning point. Like this is it. This is huge, a huge difference in policy, and you're kind of reallocating a lot of the wealth. And we're going from a long cycle from wealth accumulation to wealth distribution now, which usually ends in in real inflation. Totally. I, I mean, I, I think the only way to view this is within the context of a wealth redistribution. And uh, you know, there's also been talks about um, increasing the estate tax as well, which I think would fall into that same category. Um, some pretty, you know, relatively extreme measures being talked about here. Um, and, and you have obviously 
um, a lot of people who are not so happy about this, um, Republicans especially, uh, mm-hmm. who are still insisting on retaining the 2017 corporate tax cuts, but they really don't like uh, this proposal. Uh, so Chuck Grassley of Iowa, who is a top Republican on the Senate Finance Committee, uh, said that a higher cap gains tax rate would reduce investment and cause unemployment. Um, I'm not 100% sure if that is the case uh, or if I agree with that statement necessarily. Um, I do think yeah, it's it's a bit of an open question, honestly, as, as to how much um, you know increasing the cap gains tax rate would actually decelerate investment. I, yeah. I don't know. I think people would still invest in stuff, to be completely honest with you. Um, I guess where, the question is just, is this going to... You know, huh? like, where do you put your money if... I think it just changes sectors, right? Like, instead of, like, really risky startups, you're going to go to, I don't know, say, oil companies, right? We'll, we'll see how it plays out. Um, but I, I thought this was really interesting on Twitter. This guy, David Stewart, wrote... It'll be harder for startup employees to recruit because the tax system will punish those employees. A Googler making 400K a year for 10 years will pay less tax than a startup employee making 100K for nine years, plus a 3 million payday at year 10. So basically, your effective tax rate under Biden's plan for the Googler doesn't change, but the founder's rate shoots up to 46%, which basically disincentivizes starting a company and you know getting paid meagerly for, for years and years and years. And yeah. These are all the the, um, the things underlying the hood, um, which, you know, innovation has been getting lots and lots of money. And, and that's why employment's been booming and, and all those things. And what's funny is you haven't seen the stock market really sell off on this because I think I think rates haven't really risen. You know, in, in fact, there's this weird thing is inflation is rising and we'll get into this, but triple C bond yields are at their lows. Mm. And so will it stifle startups? That that stat that David Stewart brought up seems like, yes, that's your initial reaction. But if there's nowhere else to put your capital and rates stay low and it's just stifled, maybe that keeps going. I don't know. I have no idea either. I got to yeah. say, as the as the founder of a startup, I don't love this. Uh, I don't love this proposal. Yeah, um, yeah. I could imagine all all your earnings have been back waiting. I, I listened to something from Chamath Palihapitiya and and uh, Patrick O'Shaughnessy the other day, where he was like, "I didn't really get a big payday until you know my Facebook stock vested." Mm-hmm. He became a you know billionaire, obviously, but like he wasn't really that wealthy until that that point of liquidity. And I think that's the the economy we're really living in. So you, in some ways, and I, I gotta just take a shot at the boomers here. It's you're disincentivizing everybody under you and your generation, so you can kind of maintain the, your quality of life in a lot of senses. I gotta be honest. I wonder how prevalent that's gonna. So SNL the other day, or like a couple of weeks ago, I know you. I think you sent this to me, but mm-hmm. it was they were making fun of the boomers who kind of just walked all over everyone here. And it was like a joke, but that was honestly one of the first reactions that I felt to this news as well. I was just like, this is so unfair. This is, you got away with it for such a long period of time. And now it's our generation that's going to have to pick up the tab. Mm -hmm. It just sucks. I, that's, that was my genuine reaction. That was my genuine reaction to it. Yeah. That's how it always works. But like, you know, that, that, 
tweet I have pinned on my Twitter account is the heroes of this generation are usually the villains of the next. And we all know, we all know it's going to happen. We know we're not going to get social security. We know, you know, the Medicare and all the, the nice benefits that they're enjoying. We don't even have pensions. Like we, you know, people don't even have, you know, they're not saving for retirement because they're too busy paying off their student loans. So all those things usually will get solved with inflation. So uh, our friend Tavi Costa um, put together this really good chart where he's basically charting um, U.S. marginal tax bracket so that the um, highest marginal tax bracket percentage versus uh, public jet te- debt to GDP. And basically, these two things move in lockstep. So as you have um, a higher percentage of debt to GDP, then the government tends to increase the tax rate on you know, the highest, the highest income earners, essentially. Mm-hmm. And you can see it clear as day on this chart. Um, but, you know, since 1990, essentially, there's been a 30 year divergence. And as debt to GDP has soared, um, you know, taxes for the 1% has essentially stayed flat. And I guess his his point, right? And if you look towards history, you would just say, this can't keep going on forever. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess, you know, kind of what we're seeing right now is pretty inevitable. Yeah, and what's fascinating about that chart is back in World War II, the effective tax rate was almost like ninety percent on the highest marginal tax bracket, and you know we're at you know thirty forty percent. So that's we got a long way to go and a lot of wood to chop. Pomp put a funny tweet out and he said, you know, why are we raising taxes uh, if we can just print up the money? And I think it really is we are talking reallocation of wealth because taxing the highest corporate tax bracket essentially takes from this pie and hands it to this pie. Uh, whereas like money printing, you could make an argument that it just kind of annihilates the middle and the lower classes with financial asset inflation. Yeah. I think one of the less well understood externalities of the U S printing the amount of money that it has is in the past, the line of thinking has gone, oh, we can't print money because we just can't afford to do that, right? Oh, we, you know, there's this, there's this, there's this shared understanding that, you know, you have to be fiscally responsible. Now that illusion has been shattered, right? So the, the response is, oh, well, we can pay for anything, right? So it's just actually a choice, right? It used to be, oh, well, we just can't afford to forgive uh, college debt, right? And now it's like, well, we could, we just have to decide if we really want to. And that's mm-hmm. a big difference. You know? Yeah. It's, it hasn't, we haven't paid the price now. It's usually like you pay it down the line, right? It's like eating ice cream every night. Yeah. You wake up one day and you're, you know, a lot, a lot fatter. Yeah. It, it kind of shatters this illusion for you where, you know, you say, okay, well, I get why we have to do this infrastructure spending. Okay. The money's got to come from somewhere. I, I understand we have to hike taxes, but now it's like, well, no, we don't actually. <laughs> so someone is yeah. just deciding um, to reallocate wealth away from, you know, whoever to, to someone else, right? It's a reallocation, not, it's just a very different mindset. Um, and I think, I don't think it's fully understood yet that that pane of glass has been shattered. Um, just something to think about, I would say. For sure. Yeah. And the last thing that I'll say here is just, when it comes to government policy, even really well-intentioned government policy around these kinds of areas can completely backfire. So 
there was this really great story during the Clinton era. So in 1992, George H.W. Bush, when he was campaigning, um, made this very famous trip to Japan. It was the trip where he threw up um, in the lap of, of the, you know, the Japanese leader. And, you know, there's all this press and his, he, he kind of points to it as the reason, one of the reasons that he lost that election to, to Clinton. Um, but something else that happened there was he brought all these, these high paying executives with him. And the press kind of caught on to the fact that these, these high paid, uh, these American executives were making five times as much as their Japanese counterparts. So suddenly the issue of executive compensation was huge during the Clinton administration or the Clinton campaign. And he campaigned for executive uh, compensation reform and yada, yada. So he gets into the White House. He actually does that. And he passes this, this bill um, that essentially limits uh, for executive pay over a million dollars. It's not tax deductible. So, you know, basically companies were really incentivized to not uh, pay their executives as much. But the loophole was that performance-based compensation was not applicable to this tax deduction thing. So what ends up happening? All of the CEOs and executives at these companies end up getting compensated in stock. And that's, you can literally look at when that legislation was passed and you can look at share buybacks and they walk in lockstep. It's nuts. So well-intentioned, absolutely. Did he need to do it? Was it a politically savvy move? Absolutely. Did it work? No, it did the opposite of working. It exacerbated the problem. And, you know, if you look 30 years out, it is worse than it has ever been. So my question is just, is there a better way to get this accomplished, right? Than even well-meaning uh, government policies here sometimes backfire in really, really big ways. And I would ask the question, you know, is this really going to do what, what they think it's going to do? Yeah, that Mike Abolito's history lesson of the week, by the way. <laughs> I think two weeks ago it was a Roman, uh, Roman history. Now yeah. we get a little Clinton and Bush history. But Continually uh, out myself yeah. as a nerd. Yeah. So, so the road to hell is obviously paved with good intentions, and these things never really pan out like politicians plan. Look at, mm -hmm. look at Obama. Like He basically came in and he was – trying to right the wrongs of all the excess in the 2008 crash. And he just exacerbated the problem. The debt bubble grew even bigger. The stock market's even higher now. And all the debt-fueled buybacks, That's that game's still going on. And it, it, it's just, it always is, it's the contraindicator of presidency in, in any like legislation. It's usually, think about uh, the election in general. Like it's a popularity contest. And once someone gets into office, it's generally like a sign that the pendulum's kind of swinging the other way in general. Mm. So I, I don't know, like this is obviously it's going to have some major side effects. And one of them we're seeing, which is a good transition, you and I have been talking about, you know, inflation and, and inflation, not in financial assets, that's still there, but like the underlying real goods inflation. Yep. Um, do you want to take us into that? Yeah, yeah, I'll give you kind of the synopsis and then you, you know, you, you go in. But, you know, I, I think we're really starting to see the beginnings of soft commodity inflation, right? So, you know, one, you know, something that people are paying a lot of attention to right now is the price of lumber, which is up something like 373%. Um, softs, uh, so that's like wheat, soybeans, corn, etc. Those are up 257%. Um, and iron ore uh, throughout the last 12 months um, is up over 200%. So between... Uh, softs uh, and raw industrials, you know, we're seeing commodities hitting all-time highs, and yet uh, our CPI gauge isn't budging. So I guess my question to you is, is how is that possible? 
I don't know. But everyone's starting to talk about, you know, the CPI not really moving as much as these massive moves. Like literally everything else in the world is is rising at an incredible rate. Like we talked about housing prices like last week, almost up 50 percent in my neighborhood. Like, mm. come on. It's crazy. Crazy land. Um, and people are now talking about this concept of owner's equivalent rent. It's a component of the CPI mm. where it's 27, let's say 25% of the CPI. And it basically is just a survey that they ask homeowner, homeowners, if someone were to rent your home today, how much do you think it would rent for monthly, unfurnished, and without utilities? So these are people who aren't realtors. It's just like me and my house being like, oh, you know, my rent is a thousand bucks. And obviously they also have an incentive to keep it lower too, because they don't want to raise their tax base on their home by any means. So that is a major skew in the numbers lower uh, in the CPI, I think. And that's starting to go around now. But even with that, we're still, you know, we're still going to go over 2% handily, I think, in the, the ensuing months. And we'll really find out then if this is transitory uh from from the fed but hold on tyler wasn't there a system like that um with banks based out of london uh where people basically went and asked um you know what the overnight rate was i thought that worked out really well as a system oh, yeah people behave super well in that sort of scenario or something like that no <laughs> perverse incentives there whatsoever um yeah i yeah that is really interesting i I mean, I have, I have a perspective on this from my from my past life as a consultant, and um, you know, people talk about there being an inf uh, a lag when it comes to CPI and, and inflation, and I think I could shed a little bit of light on on why that is. Um, so I used to work for this firm. We had a really niche, really niche specialty. We would help large corporations purchase steel. That was like our thing that we did better than anyone else. Really sexy for a kid coming out of college. At, got deep into the steel market uh really really sexy business right there um, this is where like real on the ground idiosyncratic knowledge helps understanding like what's happening so totally what'd you do well so here's what it gave me a, so basically who we would work for is large we call them oems original equipment manufacturers or tier one suppliers to oems and we would help them purchase their raw materials more effectively and what you start to understand if you look at let's use the example of a car. I know that's probably not included in CPI, but it's the one that I understand the most. So it's the one I'm going to use. Um, but if you look at a company like BMW, the reason they called an original equipment manufacturer um, is because they are basically assembling large component parts, right? So they're essentially assembling fully completed doors, a fully completed hood, electronic systems, all this stuff. And they're basically just putting it together. And as you go further and further down the value chain, you essentially find all of these different, you know, we used to call them tier ones, tier twos, tier threes, but there are people who make the doors of a car. And then you get one layer down and they make the electrical components of the car. And then you get one layer down. It's like, they're just making the steel, right? Part of the door. And then those people are actually buying steel from a steel mill. And what you find is like, I'll, I should have just started with this question. So if you look at, if you look at a car, let's say that 20% of the raw material uh, component cost of a car is steel. Steel regularly, you know, over a yearly basis fluctuates by as much as 100%, right? But the price of your car doesn't change. Why is that? Because one, 
you can't just have you can't just have the price of a Toyota changing, you know, every month based on whatever the component costs are. People just won't purchase that way. And the people that have all of the leverage are the people who are sitting at the end of the supply chain, like BMW or Toyota, right? They have access to the consumer, they have all the leverage. So basically what happens when commodity costs rise across a value chain is there's essentially a game of hot potato um, that gets played from all of the different players along the different steps of the value chain. And they are essentially trying to pawn off the cost of rising commodities onto one another. And their success in their ability to do that depends on, it's kind of idiosyncratic, depends on the different value chain. Um, but it also just depends on how they've structured their contracts. But essentially what happens when the price of a raw material rises like that is somebody's got to eat that cost, but it ends up being one of those tiny little suppliers along the value chain of the manufacturer. And it doesn't usually end up being the guy at the end who is BMW, who has access to the consumer and controls all of the, you know, has a lot of leverage in the supply chain. Um, and, you know, one other very interesting thing that my company used to do, uh, which is really deflationary for commodity prices, is we used to do these things called directed buys. Now, directed buys is if you've got a BMW all the way at the end of the value chain and the steel mill all the way at this other end, and maybe there are 10, you know, linkages in between. What used to happen was that this little itty bitty guy who's making the, the car doors, and maybe that's a $50 million a year business, is negotiating with this gigantic steel mill about steel about prices, right? And the steel mill is much larger, they're more sophisticated, they have all the leverage in that scenario. What BMW figured out all the way at the end of this value chain is they figured out, wait a second, I am the real end user of all this steel. All of my little suppliers at this end are actually purchasing millions and millions of tons of steel per year. What I am gonna do is I'm gonna round up all those suppliers and I'm gonna negotiate on their behalf. And I am going to go to the steel mill and say, I am Mr. BMW, I am the buyer of this steel and I am gonna negotiate based on the volume that I'm spending. And like overnight, you know, when these programs got implemented, the, you know, the cost reductions on those raw materials were like 20 or 30%. So, there's this huge deflationary force in terms of how these value chains are structured and the lever it's just it's just purely a you know business decision um that's a but, microcosm of really what i think is going on across industry is you have these giant mega distributors that basically control the price in a lot of senses and you put out of business the guy upstream producing like the main essential good right mm -hmm. and only the most efficient ones can kind of function under that scenario and it hollows out the, the industry. So when you have this giant 12.3 trillion in monetary and fiscal that comes in, boom, hits everybody and money gets reallocated to a different pocket of society, then in, the real inflation hits and then you don't have the production capacity on the upstream guys, right? And I think we're seeing that across, you know, oil, gold, um, you know, steel, probably lumber, every, everything really probably is, is functioning the same way. But that's really a fascinating thing that you don't get insight on if you're just looking at the data as a Wall Street analyst. That's right. Because honestly, when, when commodity costs rise, who ends up eating that is a lot, a lot of the companies, uh, essentially along the value chain of these big kind of non-sexy industrial companies. And then the last thing I'll say on this as well, there's this really interesting relationship. So, you know, we're talking about the price of iron ore 
Iron ore is one of the major components in the price of steel. It's iron ore and coking coal are the major two raw material inputs into creating steel. Um, and you would think that as the price of iron ore goes up, so does the price of steel. And it does for a little bit. But what happens is executives, there is a ton of offline supply, steel mill production capability in the United States. So what happens when steel mill producers see the price of iron ore going up, they say, oh boy, price of steel is going to go up and we have all this production capability. So they see that price of iron ore going up and then they start to bring capacity online and they essentially bring more supply to the market and that dims the effect. So actually sometimes when you have these raw material price run-ups, it actually, one step down the chain, it actually ends up bringing so much supply online that it reduces more upstream commodity prices, which is a really weird thing. It took me a long time to wrap my head around. Um, yeah. But dude, that's the very cool thing to bring this to Bitcoin. That, that's why this really hit home with me that no matter what, there is a rigid supply inflexibility. Mm-hmm. Completely. It is the only thing on earth that as there is more demand, you cannot bring more supply online. Yeah. And, and the other thing is there's usually when you have, because debt is so easy to get by the end consumer and by a lot of people along the lines of these, you know, supply chains, you can purchase way more than you need now, which you can't like, and, and I, I don't think people are using debt to buy Bitcoin just yet. Maybe the crazy people and they, they use the, the, the leverage and you know, the, the options market, Mm. but, um, for the most part, it's a very like natural, real demand there. And the price and elasticity really, really helps the the bull markets. And that's why it's such a crazy convex asset. Like it really is the middle-class asset for people to try and save their purchasing power. Now, um, it is volatile. It's a hundred vol asset. So obviously this pullback scared a lot of people, but like, Mm -hmm. I agree with you. That's the, the one thing is like supply is, is so tight. You know, it's hard not to be bullish longer term. Yeah. I mean, you have said this thing that I've thought a lot about, which is that volatility does not equal risk. And what you might be looking at in Bitcoin is a, as an asset class that's extremely volatile, but might be weirdly less risky than traditional markets, which at this point, everything is propped up by the Fed and central banking and monetary policy. I, I, mm-hmm. I'm not even sure if that's a, a question, right? Like, and if you and if you think that's not the case, ask what would happen if the central bank reduced its balance sheet by half, right? Or if they stopped, or even if they just stopped injecting trillions of dollars into the market via monetary policy or what's now becoming fiscal policy. Everything is trading based on what central banks are doing. So if you think that it's, if you like that it doesn't look as volatile, just consider that's the risk that you're taking, right? There's one key variable. And if that folds for any reason, I mean, literally every asset is extremely vulnerable. So yeah, going back to Tavi Costa's uh, chart on on debt to GDP, and basically we see debt at these levels usually when there's war, right? And and it's kind of a scary thought, but when you have this much debt in the world, generally there's geopolitical conflict, which we haven't mm-hmm. seen yet. I think we're in kind of like a cold war with China, but 
I think that's that's probably coming because all it takes is one little like trade spat to really get things rocking and like we're seeing some kind of funky stuff in in FX markets like first we went the dollar was rocking now the dollar's really getting annihilated because all this you know stimulus is going in but that messes with Japan's economy and China's economy and what you're seeing is that the yuan and the yen are strengthening, which is actually highly inflationary for, for I guess, goods mm. um, for us. Yeah. So it's the, the currency wars thing is going on now. I know. Currency wars, trade wars, hot yeah. wars. Hopefully that's not the case. No. Yeah. But, uh... but yeah, being long, the, the one thing, being long a high vol asset is is scary in some ways but then not in others like this it's a geo geographically distributed holder base that all own it for similar reasons which is that they don't really trust their governments with this much debt mm -hmm. and to me that's less risky in a very geopolitical world than a giant low vol asset like triple triple c high yield bonds are now yielding 7.23% right now, which is crazy. If, you know, some of the things, these things are going to default. It's a generational low. It's, it's nuts. So that's low vol. Hey, it's low vol, but like you're, you're buying something that's priced to perfection and you're assuming that that's going to keep going on in perpetuity while inflation's rising. So like, I don't know, something's going to break here, um, in my view. And for a really interesting view on high yield markets in general, you turned me on to this podcast, but Greg Foss's podcast uh, with Preston Pish is one of the best, one of the best episodes I've listened to in some period of time. He has a background as a high yield trader in Canada. It's pretty hilarious stories about his time um, making markets in Canada up there as a trader. Uh, but yeah, definitely worth listening to. Shout out, Greg. In, in my read, high yield guys and derivs guys are usually the smartest guys on the street. They understand capital structure, yield, and and what the game is all about, which is, you know, it, you got to listen to that one. You got to listen to that one, yeah. He's got a delightful Canadian accent as well. Which is all right. Um, so moving back into the world of crypto here, one... So this is a non-confirmed story, I want to say. Um, but uh, Coindesk reported earlier this week that Mike Novogratz's Galaxy Digital is said to be in talks to acquire BitGo. Um, so if this is true, and again, this is not a confirmed story, no one was actually named as a source in the story, and uh, neither firm uh, confirmed uh, you know, whether or not this was true. Um, but this would actually be the second time that BitGo has been mentioned as an acquisition target. Um, earlier this year, PayPal was reportedly in talks to acquire them, pretty late stage talks. Um, there was a number that got thrown around 750 million in terms of valuation. Uh, PayPal in the end opted to go with Curve, which is another crypto custodian. I guess, you know, but, you know, before we kind of get into our opinions here, just as a review of Galaxy's lines of business, uh, you know, they're essentially trying to be I think a crypto merchant bank, right? So if you look at their different arms of business, they have asset management, they have principal investing, they have trading, and they have investment banking. So, you know, when you look at a company like BitGo, which started out as a custodian, but they've been moving further and further into kind of prime services and market access. So they're doing things like trading, lending, settlement, cap intro, et cetera. They've got the suite of portfolio tools. I, I don't know. They've got, I, I also don't know how much, how many assets they're, they're custodying. 
But, you know, when you look at them as, as kind of that market access infrastructure play and they bring a lot of assets, I, I don't know. I actually think this acquisition makes a good amount of sense for a company like Galaxy. What do you think? Yeah, there's a, a lot of uh, value in custody and it's it's probably the least sexy business, of like, you know, cap intro and trading and raising money and you know, all that stuff. But like it's it's a everybody needs it it's kind of like you know security is is something that everyone will pay a fee for no matter what and it, to have one of the best ones i think it's great and in my idea here is like if this is happening and this is true you know i know galaxy is probably highly profitable but like why don't you pull a michael sailor and issue like some convertible bonds or debt or whatever the hell it is and with rates this low and just just buy it like go for it. You 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 have the the tidal winds of of credit at your back. We're gonna probably see like huge leverage buyouts. So take advantage of the rates while you can. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, if there's one thing Mike uh, Mike Novogratz just doesn't do enough of, it's take risk. Am I right? Guys, <laughs> just a guys, just a super risk averse uh, <laughs> fella. Um, what do you I think? think? It, I think it's a good idea, and I think. You know, I think the other thing is that at one point in crypto, it seemed like everyone was trying to do custody. It was like, oh God, like another custody provider. Mm -hmm. That was a couple of years ago. Now it's like, whoa, a lot of these custody providers are starting to get scooped up. And suddenly it looks like there aren't that many good independent crypto custodians left available. And at the end of the day, if you want to be a major player in this space, I think you have to have your own custody solution figured out, right? Yeah. So suddenly these custodians who invested in that, it's looking pretty goddamn smart, I would yeah. say. Um, and the backbone of asset management too is like, no one ever says this, but when you're doing cap intro and you're basically like going around, all the compliance are like, well, where do you custody? And, you know, they're worried in like a tail risk scenario that your money gets stolen, especially in digital assets. So like, yeah, I think that's that helps the suite of products a lot more. Yeah. Let's see if it goes through. Let's see if it goes through. I don't know. I would imagine. Look, I mean, I think they could command a premium. I mean, Bitco's, Bitco's built a blue chip brand in this space. I mean, we work with them a lot, uh, you know, disclosure, but I genuinely have a super high opinion of their company and their management team. And they've unquestionably done a really good job of growing a really successful business. Um, yeah. I think they did what a lot of other uh, of their competitors did, which they kind of started with the core custody thing. And then they did something really smart, which was to move into prime services. That seems like a good direction. I don't know. I think they're a catch. I, I think he'll probably have to pay up. Um, yeah. But this part of the interview is brought to you by BitGo. <laughs> no, it's not. It's literally not even. But uh, but no, I, I mean, that's my that's my genuine opinion on it. So I guess we'll see how it plays out. Um, totally. All right. And then the last thing here that we want to cover Big, big caveat here. So we're going to talk a little bit about Tether and Coinbase. So Coinbase Pro has announced support for Tether's Ethereum-based USDT stablecoin. Coinbase Pro, which is Coinbase's professional trading app, will support trading of the ERC-20-based USDT. Although I'll just say that the stablecoin also operates on other networks like Tron. Um, the announcement comes just a week after Coinbase's direct listing on NASDAQ and just two months after Tether settled an investigation with a New York attorney general for $18.5 million and agreed to submit quarterly documentation. All right. 
there's a lot to unpack with this. I, I will just fully go out and say here, um, this seems to me, I, I'm a little bit confused by this. I It feels significant to me, but I'm not 100% certain that I understand all of the implications. So instead mm-hmm. of us telling you stuff here or giving our opinions, I think let's just make sure we're asking the right questions. And if there are listeners who understand this better than us, please hit up Tyler or me and just let us know what we're missing here. Um, you know, be- one, one of the things that we got to find for digital asset market structure is an expert that can really explain this stuff to a dumb person like myself well, in the, in the public markets, you know, you have this guy, Justin Shack, he's at Rosenblatt or, you know, Brad Katsuyama and Ronan Ryan at IEX. Like they de- deconstruct like, you know, equity market structure better than anybody in like simple, simple terms. Who's that guy in crypto? And I don't know. this to me superficially looks like, okay, Tether has what 50 billion in assets. It opens up a new gate of liquidity versus USDC is like 13.5, I think. So mm. it just makes things more liquid and it's kind of greasing the wheels of, I guess, it's building highways, better highways on, on digital assets is my idea. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, the benefit to Tether is clear. I guess the benefit to Coinbase is what I'm struggling with a little bit because Coinbase, you know, with Coinbase and Circle, there's USDC, Right, they're they're core consortium members of that, and you know USDC is at least in my opinion seen as kind of the blue chip stablecoin. That's like I feel much safer transacting in USDC than I do in Tether, to be totally honest. And Tether, you know, on the other hand, it is used a lot on these Asian exchanges. It was even though it's been sort of cleared, quote unquote, um, by this investigation. It was certainly, there was a lot of really fishy stuff going on there for a long time. It doesn't have a shining sterling reputation. So, you know, in some sense, this looks like Coinbase almost blessing um, their biggest competitor on the stablecoin front, which is a little bit confusing. Um, On the other hand, I guess, you know, I guess they're a heavily transaction-based business. So it's just a popular trading pair. So theoretically, maybe the revenue that they'll generate from being able to list trading pairs in Tether will outweigh, you know, you know, offset what they lose on the stablecoin side of things. Um, I guess the other aspect of this that I still really don't understand is the international expansion. Uh, as far as I know, Coinbase hasn't talked about international expansion. I would assume, based on the global nature of crypto as an industry, they plan on going global. And I guess having Tether, you know, supporting Tether would probably be key to yeah. that. That's the logical one. But they already, you have to do KYC AML already through Coinbase. And that's kind of the whole point of using Tether. Mm-hmm. So, you know, someone else, someone did point out, I saw that um, a lot of the OTC transactions um, happen in Tether. Um, so obviously Coinbase has an OTC and kind of prime brokerage business as well with mm-hmm. Tagomi. So potentially there's revenue on that side of things. Yeah. I, I guess, guess we'll I don't out. know. A couple months. Yeah, I guess we'll find out in a couple months what they were all doing. What was the yeah. grand scheme here? There um, is a huge gap in what I found is like little idiosyncratic things like this that seem like a big deal and like the reporting of it. Because like I haven't read anything that has like a tangible, here are the, si- here's the knock-on effects of what happens in this. You yeah. Know, 
that's what, and I think that's what we're trying to dabble in here at Blockworks is, is figure out those big tectonic plates that, that no one else can, but exactly. Yeah, we're open. We're trying to get knock on effects here. What's yeah. the context? It's well, okay. Oh. It's a headline, but like, yeah. Why does it matter? I think is the, yeah. you know, that's what I'm interested in. All right, man. What are you up to this weekend? Any, any big plans? Um, you know what? Nothing, nothing much. It's another, mm. it's, Raining outside, we're, we're getting, uh, looks like about to get some thunderstorms. You should see these thunderstorms here in, in the springtime. It's like when it starts raining, there's a legit river like in the side of my yard that goes into the street. Mm. Yeah. Something different I, from California when I lived there. I can imagine. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, uh, you know, I saw your newsletter it hasn't gone live yet, but I now know the, uh, the state motto of Texas, um, oh. <laughs> which is, which is, Friendship? Friendship. <laughs> Not what I would have thought. Not what I would have imagined. Well, what, what's Massachusetts? You're from there. I have no idea. What is... Here, I'll look it up right now. Yeah, the Bay State or something. It is. <laughs> something in Latin. Uh, by the sword, we seek peace, but peace only under liberty. <laughs> bit of a mouthful Massachusetts um yeah. so one was not thinking on the branding side of things when they made that the same model um but I love uh was it Tennessee agriculture and commerce, and commerce. well I mean <laughs> dude even you know we're right next to New Hampshire New Hampshire's give me liberty or give me death it's a little yeah. intense but at least it's catchy live, live free or die bro yeah live free or die <laughs> Damn it! Yeah. Whatever you know, same, same. It's catchy, right? You don't need to, you know. Not making salad here. I don't know. I uh, what? Uh, uh, what are you doing this week? <laughs> that wasn't an expression either, by the way, man. I really need to. It's it's Friday afternoon. I'm 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 in uh, Pennsylvania right now. I'm doing a little reunion. That's why I've got this different different background here. But um, doing a reunion with some some high school friends I haven't seen in a little while. So Sweet. Pennsylvania, yeah. Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. Right there. Farm country, baby. I'm, uh, so yeah, shout out to, uh, Riley. I'm actually, Riley's one of our early employees at Blockworks. I'm with him, Bucks County Biscotti. If nice. anyone listening loves Biscotti, you should absolutely, uh, give their site a, it, literally the best Biscotti I've ever had. Um, <laughs> tell him I sent you. He'll know what that means. <laughs> All right, man. It's late on a Friday. This is getting, yeah. this is getting goofy. I think we got to call it here. Just a right. while we're ahead. So, um, this was fun as always, my man. I will see you uh, same time next week. Sounds good. See you, man.